0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me just say, I have felt like we have just been pressing on the gas pedal in this Gospel. Uh, We're just gaining steam. We're gaining speed. There is so much rich depth in these verses that I feel like every Sunday I, I walk away just seeing Jesus more clearly, loving Him more nearly and dearly to my own soul and, and, just enjoying him. And so I feel like we just keep diving deeper and deeper. And at the same time, as we're moving quickly through these verses, I feel like, I feel like we're almost running out of gas, uh, slowing down because we just, we take 12 verses, 11 verses, 10 verses pretty soon. We're not even going to be able to take one verse because it's so deep. It's so massive. So we're moving quickly, but at the same time, we're just, we're hitting a section of scripture that it would be an injustice to go too quickly through. So with that being said, I have no idea where this sermon is going to wind up. Um, I have 10 pages. Normally I preach six pages. I have 10 pages. So either we're going to keep on flying with the gas pedal to the floor, or we might just have to have a two-parter here. The reason why we need to do that is because we are coming to a section of scripture that is massively important. I believe that this section of scripture details for us what the essence of true saving faith is, and what it looks like to be a Christian and to walk with Jesus. So, if we miss the point of these verses, I think we would do uh, just a, a terrible injustice to these verses if we walked away going, "Yeah, we got the point, we got the idea," but but we didn't sit and simmer in the truth of these passages. So I just want to dive in. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 30 through 40 is where we are going to spend our time. As we study this gospel, beautiful gospel, we we wind up in the middle of John 6. So let's uh, read it together here in John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, these are the crowds. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. The next day, they're asking him, give us bread, give us food. And he says, I am... um, The the one you need, I give you the works of God. I'm I'm it. And they ask him, they say to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who. Who gives you the true bread out of heaven? For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me but you don't believe all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i certainly will not cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given to me i lose nothing but raise it up on the last day For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Father, these words are so rich. Elongate our time. We want to savor Jesus. Jesus. We want to understand what he means when he says, if you behold and believe in me, you will have eternal life. God, give us eyes to behold Jesus. Let the scales of our flesh and the scales of our sin be removed from our eyes so that we can see Jesus. These crowds saw Jesus and didn't believe. There's a way to see you and not believe, and there's a way to see you and believe. So God, please, may your spirit Open eyes, open hearts, give illumination to minds, give understanding to souls so that we would see Jesus clearly beholding him for exactly who he claims to be and believing in him alone for salvation. Do the work that you love to do and that only you can do as evidenced in this text. Draw souls in this room to Jesus. Give them to Jesus even this morning. Give them. Save souls and sanctify the souls of those that you have given to your son. Sanctify them this morning because of your word. Jesus says later in John that you, he asks you, Father, to sanctify us in the truth. And your word is truth. So as we preach the word of God, may we be sanctified by your truth. Spirit, give us eyes to see. May we behold Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. John chapter 6, verses 30 through 40. We find ourselves uh, the day after the feeding of 5,000. Jesus also walked on water that night. He came out to his disciples in the boat. Remember when he got into the boat, John omits that, they, uh, that the storm stopped. There was no need to bring that um, fact to, to, to light because it was very clear that once you have Jesus in your boat, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. You have Jesus. You have all you need. That's the whole point of these verses. If you have Jesus, you'll be satisfied. You don't need anything else. That's what Jesus is going to say in these verses. But the crowds aren't getting it. The crowds aren't getting it. Uh, Start in verse 26, just to remember where we were last uh, two weeks ago. Jesus says to them, as they come, they say, how'd you get here? Because Jesus walked on water. He didn't leave in the boat with his disciples. How did you get here? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled You want me for temporal, fleshly reasons. And so he says the opposite here, verse 27. Don't work for that. Don't work for the food which perishes. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. There are two types of working and two things you can work for. So he says, work for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. He says, I have been sealed by the Father. He has established me as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Listen to me, he's saying. So, verse 28, they say to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? I think there's two things in what they're saying. We love the bread and we want to do that. And since you're not going to keep giving us bread, um, we want to be able to make the bread ourselves. And we want to do what God wants us to do, to be in a right, reconciled relationship with him. So tell us what we need to do. And Jesus says, verse 29, this is the work of God. If you want to work to get to God, this is the work you do. Nothing. You believe. There's nothing you can do. You believe in him whom he has sent. There's no works that can get us to God because our works are filthy rags. So Jesus says, just believe. So they say, okay, you're asking us to believe in you. You're asking us to submit ourselves to you. And you're saying, that's it. We just need to believe you, follow you. That's it. So they say, we need a sign. Verse 30, we need a sign. And as they dive into this sign, we're going to see the gift of the father, that is Jesus, rejected by the crowds. And then we're going to see the kind of the second half. If You want to outline the sermon. We're going to see in the second half the reception of the gift of the father. God, the father, is giving Jesus as a gift. And these two parts of this passage, of this text, clearly demonstrate, number one, the rejection of the Father's gift, rejecting the Father's gift, the crowds rejecting. This is verses 30 through 36. The second point of the outline this morning is the receiving of the Father's gift, verses 37 through 40. There's rejecting Jesus, there's receiving Jesus. What's the difference? How does this come about? They say, okay, if we're going to receive you, then you need to do a sign for us. Verse 30. What sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Now, if I'm Jesus, and you're all very happy that I'm not, uh, but if I'm Jesus, I would go, what work? I just did a work. Not, I mean, not even 24 hours. I just did a work. You're here because of that work. I just fed over 20,000 people, and you're telling me, what work? Why do they say what work? Two reasons. Number one, unbelief hardens your heart. It makes you see things differently. It makes you hear things differently. And they are simply forgetting and moving past the miracle as if it were nothing. It's unbelief. But number two, to be fair to these crowds, number two, they say, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're going back in their minds to Moses and manna. They're saying, okay, we think that you're the prophet. We think you're the Deuteronomy 28 prophet, the Messiah. You're you're claiming to be, we want to believe that. So you need to do a sign that's greater than what Moses did. And Moses, in their mind, gave manna to the children of Israel, not just one time, not just feeding over 20,000 people, The manna fed millions of people every day for decades. So they say, you need to perform a sign like that. They asked him already, give us this bread. Keep doing these these miracles. We want to see. We want to see. We want to believe. And Jesus says, no, you missed the point. The point isn't the bread. The point is me. It's supposed to point to me. So they say, well, then give us the power. If you're not going to do the work for us continually, give us the power to do the work. Kind of like, uh, Simon Magus in, in uh, Acts eight. You know, let me pay to get the Holy Spirit. I want to perform these works. So let me do these works. False believers, unbelievers, and these crowds do not love Jesus, so they say, uh, give me, give me the power. And Jesus says, nope. The work that you need to do is believe. You don't, you don't get the power. They say, well, what sign? Because you're not demonstrating to us that you're greater than Moses. And they demand this of him, perform this sign. Jesus answers, verse thirty two. Truly, truly, I say to you, he gives two denials and one amazing statement. Two denials and one amazing statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, it isn't Moses who gave you the bread. So you got that wrong. Even in their quotation in verse 31, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They're saying that was Moses when the he is clearly in context. God, God gave bread. God gave manna. So he says, no, it wasn't Moses. You misunderstand that. Moses is great and all, but he's not God. You misunderstand that. So it's not Moses who gave you the bread. It's my father who gives, who gives you the true bread out of heaven. The second denial is that the bread, the physical bread itself is the issue. He said, it's not Moses who gave you bread out of heaven. It's my father who gives you true bread out of heaven, not physical bread. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this chapter is just all about bread. It's just bread, 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 bread. Why? Because bread is a necessity to live. Food is a necessity to live and to quench hunger. And to keep you alive and to satisfy your your, your body. You need food. And so Jesus says, You misunderstood God gave a picture through the manna that He will sustain you spiritually just as He did physically. They don't get it. They don't get it. My Father is the one who gives you the true bread out of heaven. This is an amazing offer. So we've got two denials and then we've got an amazing offer. The amazing offer is this My Father is giving to you true bread. It's accessible to all. It's available to all. Verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Me, Jesus Christ, and gives life to the world. There's no qualification there. It's accessible to all. Even in verse 32, when he says, it is my father who gives you, that's second person plural, you all, you crowds, my father is giving you that bread. Will you eat? Will you receive? Will you receive him? It's an offer to you. It's an offer to everyone. Therefore, we preach that God has offered his son to everyone in the world, even the you here of stiff necked, rebellious, stubborn sinners. No, God offers Jesus to them and says, receive him. They still aren't going to get it. Verse 34, they're going to make another demand, which again is stereotypical of false believers. We've talked a lot about the different aspects of false disciples. They love crowds. They love, uh, they're infatuated with the supernatural. They, they um, uh, love going to God for what they can get from Him. They want temporal things. He's just their genie, He's just their butler. Uh, you can add to this list false disciples of Jesus make demands of Him. They make demands of Him. Verse 34 Lord, always give us this bread. You need to do what we tell you. And it makes sense that they make demands because they're already viewing him as a genie. They're already viewing him as a butler. You are here just to satisfy what I desire temporally, physically, fleshly. So bring it on. Come on. Satisfy me. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying all of these things are pointers. Remember, we talked about. Um, telling a little child, look, look at the birdie, look at the truck. And, and they're just staring at your finger, not at the actual thing you're pointing to. That's what these people are doing. They're, they're terminating on the finger and not letting it point them to the fact that Jesus is all satisfying to them and they don't need anything but him. So verse 35, he clearly explicitly says it. He clearly explicitly says in opposition to what they've been saying they just need bread. They just need physical, temporal bread. They'll find their satisfaction in that bread, not in Jesus alone. They're just interested in what Jesus can provide, not in who he is. So Jesus says, no, that it's me. I am the bread of life. It's not the bread that I'm offering to you physically. I am the bread. This is the first of seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. We're going to get to all of these. But here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I am the bread. There's even an aspect here of him paralleling manna. I don't want to go too far with this, but I think we can because man has been brought up. And he specifically said that manna, that bread was given out of heaven by the father for a specific purpose to show you about the true bread. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, ironically enough, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So he's born as the bread of life in the house of bread. He was sent from heaven um, by God by the Father, just as manna had been sent from heaven by the Father. Just like manna is described as being white, pure, falling like snow, Jesus was pure in his sinlessness. Just like manna was accessible to anyone who would come and eat. Hey, anybody can come and eat this. Jesus is accessible as the bread of life to all people who would come and eat. He's, He's there for everyone. He's accessible to everyone. And so he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes anyone, whoever comes to me, will not hunger that's the That's the issue. You will hunger again if you eat of manna, but you will never hunger again if you eat of me. You will thirst again if you drink normal water, fleshly water, but you will never thirst again if you drink from me. Now this is what we 're going to have to take two pauses in this sermon. This is the first pause because I I think that Jesus says something here that reveals what the essence of saving faith is, and it's changed my life, and I believe that a lot of us, especially coming from backgrounds that are Christian by, you know, by nature, tend to hear and think, pray a prayer, receive Jesus, done. So, we're going to go down a rabbit trail that I believe is here, and with that, I want to give you a caveat. Please, I always want to preach things from the Bible. I I never want to say something that's my opinion or that's just what I believe. Don't ever believe what I believe. That's pointless. If you can't see this in the scriptures, then just don't take it. There's no reason to believe it. I'm going to try and show you these from the scriptures, but if you can't see it, just forget about it. If you can see it and are encouraged by it and are helped by it, then go back to the Lord and say, okay, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep pressing into the essence of saving faith. We've already seen in this gospel, this whole gospel is about belief. This is why I don't think it's as much of a rabbit trail as exactly where John wants us to go. This whole gospel is about believing. Believing. Ninety times the word believe is used in this gospel. The theme verse that's up here on these uh, posters is absolutely that the the banners give the theme verse of John. He wants you to see Jesus clearly and believe him. But the theme thus far in this book is that there's two ways of believing. There's two types of believers. There's believers that are genuinely saved and there's believers that are not saved. Um, Go back to John 2 just really quickly. John 2, you'll remember these. Verses John two twenty three, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not, and my Bible says entrusting, it's literally the same Greek word as believed. So Jesus wasn't believing in them because he knew all men. He didn't need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. So we've got people believing and Jesus says, I don't believe them. I don't truly believe their belief, and He's God, so He knows they're not saved. So there is a saving belief, and there is an unsaving belief. Now we've already come across two obstacles, explicit obstacles to saving belief, in the Gospel of John. Let's say another way: What makes people's belief unbelief? What makes you an unbelieving believer? Go back to John three, John three. These are two explicit statements that Jesus gave us of why people can be believers, but not genuine saved believers. John three, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So, one explicit reason why people have belief that's not saving belief, one obstacle, is that they love the darkness and they hate the light. Before you come to Christ in any saving way, you must have some sort of love for the light and some sort of hatred for the darkness. There has to be what we would call the new birth. That's what John 3 says. The new birth has to take place so that your old affections that love sin are now new affections that love Jesus and hate sin. You need that. So saving faith must be preceded by some measure of transformation in your heart to take away the inborn hatred of spiritual light and the inborn love of spiritual darkness. A second place that we've already been through, John chapter 5. Turn to John chapter 5, verses 41 through 44. This is the second obstacle. So the first obstacle is you love sin, you love darkness, and you hate the light. First, uh, John chapter 5, verse 41. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. So the question is, why don't you receive Jesus? These crowds believe that Jesus is a a magician. He's a miracle worker and maybe he is God come in the flesh. They believe that. But they do not receive him. Why? Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God? So number one, John 3, if you love sin and you hate the light, then you can't come in a saving, receiving way. The second, it is impossible to believe in Jesus with true saving faith while your heart is completely given to the love affair of the praises of man. If you just love what people think of you and the accolades that they give you, and that's all your heart cares about, the glory of man, you won't go to Christ. You can't. It will be impossible. So then what's the flip side of that? Back in John 6. What's the flip side? If, and there are many other obstacles, by the way, that the Bible presents. Those are just two that we've already been through. So they're quick. They're explicit. Boom. Two obstacles. Loving the darkness. Hating the light. Loving the praises of man. Keeps you from believing in a saving way. So what is the alternative? How do you believe and receive in a saving way? It's verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35, the I am statement. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So the flip side, saving faith has inside of it that you are feasting on all that God is for you in Jesus and being satisfied in him above the praises of man, above the darkness of sin. He says... Whoever comes to me and he who believes in me. So a coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus. Receiving, I would put receiving in there too from John 1. Um, as many as received him, to them he gave give the right to be called children of God, even to those who believed on his name. So believing, receiving, and coming. There's a way that believing, receiving, and coming are all saving faith. So this text, verse 35, points to the fact that truly coming to Jesus in a saving way, has inside of it. The essence inside of it is that you are feeding and drinking from Jesus in such a way that he becomes the end of your quest for satisfaction. He becomes the end of your quest for satisfaction. This does not mean that you have no more desires. That when you come to Jesus and you believe him and you receive him as the all-satisfying treasure of your heart, that you cease to have desires. I'm done. Desire less. No. You still have all of your desires, but now you know that your desires are fully met in Jesus when before you were trying to find satisfaction for those desires outside of Jesus. So you come to Jesus and you say, what I most long for, what I most need, you alone have. That's the essence of coming to Jesus in a saving way. What I most long for and what I most need you alone have. This is what repentance is, right? Repentance is saying, sin will kill me, and it doesn't satisfy me because it's going to kill me. But Jesus, you offer life. I'm coming to Jesus for life. No amount of fame, health, comfort, wealth, love, respect, none of that compares to Jesus. Food tastes amazing when you are hungry. Using his analogy, the bread of life you only want to feast on bread when you are hungry, when you know you need it. So Jesus is saying, you must come to me. And the thing that will stand in the way between you coming to me and you not coming to me, the thing that stands in that way is you claiming I can be satisfied by something else. I, I, I don't need you to satisfy my hunger, to satisfy my thirst. There's other stuff in this world that can do that. And what Jesus is saying is the essence of a believer gets at the heart of saying, I've come to the end of that race. I've come to the end of that search. It's what Jesus does with the woman at the well in John 4. Lord, give me that water. I want that. I don't want to come back with the bucket. I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, you don't get it. It's not about water. It's about your spiritual thirsts. And I can meet them and I can meet them and satisfy them entirely where you don't need anything else. You've known all of these husbands. You've been immoral with all of these people. And guess what? I know that you are trying to be satisfied and I have the satisfaction that you will have for all of eternity. You don't need anywhere else. The crowds obviously don't have this kind of belief because they're saying, we don't need you. We want the bread that you can give. So give us bread and you go away. Prodigal son. We're going to talk about this uh, over the summer when we go through the parables of Jesus Christ through the summers, uh, through this summer. Uh, Prodigal son, Luke 15. The older brother and the prodigal son. They both do the exact same thing. Prodigal son says, I want your stuff. Give me your stuff. I wish you were dead and I want to take it and do my own thing. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Older brother does the exact same thing, just a little bit differently, a lot of bit differently. He says, I don't want you. I just want the stuff you can offer me and and I will obey you perfectly to get the stuff that you can offer me and then I can take it because I don't want you. I just want to be with my friends. He says, you never gave me even a little lamb that I could slaughter and have a party with my friends. I don't want you there. Unbelievers can absolutely say, Jesus is God. Unbelievers can absolutely say, we totally think he's awesome, he's amazing. These people are saying that. But what they are not saying is, and he's all I need, and he's all I want, and I'm going to deny everything else and just follow him. They're saying, just give us a little bread and then go away. Or, or, you know, better yet, give us the power to do do this bread-working miracle. We won't even need you. Get away. We don't even need you. So Jesus says, if you come to me, in a saving way, and you believe in me in a saving way, laying aside everything else, saying nothing else will satisfy me. Apart from Jesus, nothing does satisfy. C.S. Lewis says it this way, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough to satisfy. There's nothing in this world. There's a lot of sin that can satisfy. There's a lot of good things that can satisfy, but not eternally. And so Jesus says, you must come to me in such a way that your hunger goes away because your hunger is for eternal things. You're saying, I know that I've, I've been searching to be satisfied by, by so many things that this world has to offer, and you alone can satisfy. This doesn't mean that you, you get this right 100% of the, of the time. What this means is, as a believer, you're in that fight. This changes the way you live life. And it, I would just encourage you, this is like a 70-part sermon on the essence of saving faith. I would encourage you, I was greatly helped, and this is what shattered my paradigm of saving faith, the essence of saving faith, in John Piper's book, Future Grace, chapter 15 and 16. Unbelievably helpful. Uh, Going into John, going into these verses. The reality is, if I can say it this way, sometimes we call for decisions for Jesus. Just follow Jesus. And we bring people to a crisis. Follow him, or else you're going to hell. True statement, but we never bring them to a place of contemplation. Have you ever stopped to think about how you're trying to be satisfied by your sin? Where is it? How's it working out for you? Where is it leading you? Do you realize that Jesus says that that sin will kill you, and He wants to satisfy you? So now, I, I don't. I don't struggle. I, I, I struggle, but I fight it. I don't struggle with legalism now. I am no longer keeping rules to try and earn God's favor. I just need to do like I need to read my Bible because God says to or else he's going to be mad at me. No, I read my Bible because God says that Jesus is the greatest satisfaction that I can have in this life. So I would be I would be stupid not to go here. Would I rather have a donut in the morning or would I rather feast on Jesus? So it's not, oh, I have to read the Bible. It's I get to read and feast on Jesus in the morning, I would, be, I would be absolutely insane to go anywhere else. My fight for purity, my fight for, uh, fight against greed, my fight against lust, my fight against every form of idolatry. Idols are just saying, I want to go back to Jesus. I want to go back, or, I want to, go back to sin because Jesus isn't that amazing. That's all idols are. Every time we study idolatry, we're studying this issue. Will you be satisfied by Jesus or not? That's the whole point. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Now, I have been called by God as a believer to put to death what is earthly in me and to die every day. Not because that's a a difficult thing to do. Like, oh, I just have to do this because God told me. I'm doing that every day because I'm killing the things that are going to destroy my joy. I'm killing the things that keep me from being the happiest person I can be. Jesus is saying, if you come to me in the right way, you will never thirst again. And so that's my fight. And so I would just plead with you, if you wonder, where do I stand before the Lord? And I find that this happens often with uh, with baby Christians or with younger people. This happened to me. This happened to my wife. Growing up in the church, I don't want to go to hell. If Jesus gets me out of hell, I'll follow him. And that's where it starts. And I don't think that that's a bad thing because you're trusting the promises of God. Start there. But ultimately, your walk with the Lord will become such that you now follow Jesus not because you don't want to go to hell, but because you want him and you want to be in heaven with him. That's the Christian life. That's as you walk with the Lord. It ceases to be, I want to follow Jesus because um, I don't want to go to hell. And it starts to be I want to follow Jesus because he is worthy of being followed. He's worthy of being treasured. Before, it's, well, all these things that I've lived in, I really like them, but God says they're bad, and I'm going to go to hell if I live in them, so I'm going to stop that. Now it's, well, those things are pleasurable for a season. And in the end, they bring forth death. Jesus satisfies eternally. So the essence of saving faith, I believe, is in verse 35. If you come to Jesus that way, you're never going to hunger. If you believe in him that way, you're never going to thirst. You will live... Every day I wake up in the trenches of fighting the fight for my greatest joy. Um, If I can use Piper's analogy or his term, I'm a Christian hedonist. I'm fighting every day to, to find my joy in Jesus over and above anything this world has to offer. Every day. Do I do it perfectly? Nope, not at all. But I'm in the fight. Will you do it perfectly? No. That's what glory's all about. That's what heaven's all about. When we get there, we do it perfectly. Don't steal heaven's joys. They're coming, but not yet. So, if you're here this morning and you say, Yeah, I prayed a prayer, I believe that Jesus is God, and I believe that my sin is deserves my punishment. And I believe Jesus died on the cross to take that punishment. I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. I believe that. I turn from sin. I turn to him. If that's you this morning, you're saved. Please do not hear anything other than that. But I will say this. Your experience as a believer will go deeper and deeper and deeper as you learn why God saved you. God saved you to free you from sin, God saved you to free you from hell, yes, but God saved you so much more first peter three eighteen um the uh the just punished in the place of the unjust, so that why did God kill his son for us so that we wouldn't go to hell absolutely, so that we would be able to have a good life now, yeah. Second, first Peter 318, so that we would be brought to God. The end of the gospel is getting to Jesus and savoring him, not simply not going to hell. That's a part of it. And as a baby Christian, boy, that's the biggest thing that's on your mind. I was that way for at least a decade. The biggest thing on your mind is thank you, Jesus, that I'm not going to hell. Amen and Amen but slowly but surely it will become thank you Jesus that I get to go to heaven and, and you know what it does what did it for me and i think what does it for everyone is when you see the the sinful depravity and the wickedness in your own heart cuz right now it's like thanks god for saving i mean when i was 7 thank you god for saving me from my sin which was you know looking bad at my mom when she asked me to take out the trash like what sin i didn't have an understanding of what my sin was And then the older I get and the more that I study idolatry in my own heart, the more that I study my sin, the more that I dive into my heart by God's grace and his word starts to reveal what's going on, the thoughts and intentions. I used to think I'm a pretty good person. And then it became "Eh, I'm not the best, but I'm at least not as bad. And now I can honestly say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. You all think that you're decent. You all think that I'm a decent person. Nope. I'm the worst person that I know, and I'm the worst person that you know. And I know that full well. There's no, there's no second guessing that. When you get to that place, then you say, why would you ever die for me, Jesus? Why do you even love me? There were so many times as a believer that I'd go, yeah, I know that Jesus died when I was a sinner, but man, he's lucky to have me on his team. And I kind of get why he called me. I kind of get why I'm here. And then you grow up and you grow up and you realize, I have never once deserved to be on your team. I never will. I've never done anything in my life to get me here, ever. Why would you love me? And then you realize I want to be with that person that would love me despite that, that would love me inside of that, that would love me despite everything. I want to be with him. So now, yes, praise the Lord that we do not have to fear the wrath of God. Praise God. But now it's even more so, God, thank you that I get to be with Jesus forever. And it starts now. It starts now. So he says, you need to come to me that way. The crowds aren't. The crowds don't believe. Even Judas won't believe. Verse 36. But I say to you, you have seen me and you don't believe. You have seen me and you don't believe. So obviously, there is a way to behold Jesus and to see him and to think things about him that are true but still not be saved. So he's got a mass of people it has got a mass of people that say, do all these crazy miracles for us. We love you. We, We think you're the best. Do all these crazy things for us. And he says, none of you believe. You don't believe. At that point, I think that it would be easy to say, well, you failed. Jesus, you just said that God the Father gave a gift to the world to be received by the world, and nobody received you. So, the Father's gift has been rejected and it has failed. And I believe that's why he says in verse 37 All that the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I think he goes there. So, how do we receive? How do we believe in a saving way? It's a miracle. The only way that your fleshly eyes can behold Jesus in a saving way is when God opens your eyes to see him. Second Corinthians four four, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has shown into their hearts so that they can see. That's the only way that you can become saved. So is Jesus's mission? A failure because these crowds aren't believing. No, I don't believe it at all. Let me say it this way. I believe that if Jesus only offered himself, if that's all Jesus did, here I am, will you receive me? If that's all that happened, then his mission would be a failure. His mission would be a failure. There is only failure possible if Jesus just offers himself. And that's why he says the father has to bring you. The father has to bring you. The father is going to give you to me. And if the father gives you to me, then you can understand, you can believe, you can receive. Then... The miracle can take place. The new birth, like we studied in John 3. Then you can see it. If Jesus simply just offers himself, if the Father says, here's Jesus, will anybody receive him? If that's all that happens, no one would receive Jesus. And that's why he goes into, well, how do we receive him? How do we receive him? And that's in verses 37 through 40. And we're going to have to pick that up next week. There's so much here. You 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 ask the question, Okay, I wanna be a believer that's a true believer. I want to receive the way that I'm supposed to receive. How do we do that? Jesus lines up the the answer. He gives us the answer. God's gonna draw you, you're gonna you're gonna come, you're gonna behold, you're gonna believe, you're gonna do that work because God's opening your eyes to do that work. So we're gonna see that all next week. But just just for this week, just as we end. Jesus, Jesus proclaims his message is I am the bread that nourishes you spiritually, that satisfies your soul spiritually. He's going to also say you're going to have to drink my blood because my blood is going to be the thing that cleanses you, obviously. And he's explicitly going to say I'm speaking in an analogy here. I'm not saying you have to drink my blood. What he's saying is this. You can look anywhere to be satisfied spiritually and to be cleansed of your sins spiritually And if you look anywhere but Jesus, you're going to fail in your efforts. You're going to fail in your quest to find true cleansing of your sin and true satisfaction for your soul. You will fail if you don't find those ultimately in Jesus Christ. All of us hunger. Uh, That's why we all have idols. We're always worshiping every second of the day. And Jesus is saying, now point that worship to me alone, saying that nothing else works. Only I work. And as you come to me, you say, the only way I can be in your presence is if you remove the sin. I can't cleanse it myself. I can't outwork my bad works by doing good works. I can't do that. I can't do certain works that will gain approval by you. I can't do that. That's why when the crowd say, what works do we do? He says, the work that you do is believe. What does belief look like? It looks like receiving me as this and not as your magician, your miracle worker, your butler. So the conclusion of this message, I I wanted to look at rejection and receiving together. Let's just look at the rejection aspect. If we sum up the whole point of both of these sections, and we'll have to take it together uh, next week, but if we sum up the whole point in the first part of the outline, verses 30 through 36, God's gift of Jesus to the people is not received and is lost. But in the, second point, in the second part of the outline, verses 37 through 40, God's gift of his people to Jesus is received and is kept forever. Another way to say it is the first section describes the apparent failure of God sending his son to give eternal life. And the, section, the second section describes the invincible success of God's purpose to give eternal life. Or one last way that we can put it, and I actually like it this way, we can always describe what's happening in the world from two sides. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. The first half of this message, or this message, first message, part one, is all human responsibility. You need to come, and God has made himself available to all. He is the manna that's accessible to everyone. He's the gift of God to the world. That's our side, and he's going to keep on saying our side. We have a responsibility, but if it was only dependent upon us, failure would be the only possibility. And so Jesus is going to say, don't worry about failure. The way that you come to me in a saving way is given to you by the Father. And so we're going to look next week from God's side, God's sovereign side of of these things. So if you put them all together, those two points, these verses, God's purpose is to give eternal life through Jesus, and that purpose will never fail. Why would anyone reject Jesus? Well, the crowds rejected him because they had their own idea of who he should be. People do this all the time today, right? You you preach the Bible, you read the Bible, and you say, well, this is what the Bible says. And people go, yeah, I don't like that idea of God. I like my idea of God. Well, your idea of God is your God. It's not the God. It's not the one true God. Why did the crowds reject him? Because they had set up their own idea of who Messiah was supposed to be, and because their appetites, still being fleshly, could be met by him. They said, I want you to meet my needs in a fleshly way. Just give me bread, and that's all, and then go away. And Jesus says, when he says, no, no, you need to come to me for everything. They go, well, we don't want that. And they reject him. You're not our everything, Jesus. You're just a bread giver. So what does it take to end this rejection? It takes humbly coming to Jesus, saying, you do have what I want. You alone have what I need. I didn't know that I needed it until you spoke to me about it. But now that I hear it, now that I see it, I do want to savor your goodness, and enjoy you for the rest of eternity. That's what I want. Yes, I want freedom from hell. Yes, I want freedom from sin. Yes, I need to turn to Jesus as my only hope of salvation. But what that looks like is saying, I want to want you more than anything in this world. And that's what church is all about. That's why we gather. We're just giving more ammo, more ammo, more ammo to fight the fight for joy in your own hearts. Is sin pleasurable? The Bible says yes. The Bible says it is for a season, and then it brings death. Jesus is pleasurable for eternity, forever, eternal life. So as we come to these elements, we come knowing that Jesus is our bread and he nourishes us spiritually. He is the blood that was poured out for us and his blood cleanses us. We can't cleanse ourselves. So we're going to sing some songs as we prepare our hearts. The men are going to pass these elements out as we sing. And as we do, we are singing to fight for joy in what Jesus has done. And I just plead with you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, You know him. You know that you have been freed from the penalty of his wrath and spared hell for all of eternity. You know that. You know that you are following Jesus and you want to treasure him more and you're in that fight. Praise the Lord. These elements are for you to remember who Jesus is for you. These elements are for you to take. It's a remembrance, right? This does nothing to give us salvation or to earn salvation. What these elements do is remind us, okay, yet again, we're coming month after month. We're coming and we're recalibrating to remember Jesus alone satisfies, Jesus alone cleanses. His body, his bread, the bread that he gives to us to eat satisfies us alone. His blood that he gave to us cleanses us alone. That's it. And that's why we have those two pictures, so it's a remembrance. So if you're here this morning and you don't know that you are a believer, you don't know if you are truly saved, I would just plead with you, let these go. Let these elements pass you by. Um, they are for believers. The Bible is very clear. They're for believers alone. So let these elements pass you by. But I would plead with you, just come talk to me, talk to Tim, talk to Brian, talk to anybody here and just say, how do you know that you're truly saved? Because it's our greatest joy as a church. My greatest joy, not just as a pastor, but as a person, to call you into everlasting joy. That's the greatest joy that I have. I love having fun with people. How much more enjoyable is it for me to say, I can have eternal joy with you. Come with me. I want you to point you to Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus. And I pray now as we partake of communion together, <clears throat> may these elements remind us of who you are and of what you've done. May your spirit illuminate our understanding as to what your word claims about saving faith. God, I pray again that your spirit would clarify these thoughts and illuminate our understanding so that we would see Jesus in the pages of Scripture, that the obstacles that all of those crowds faced in the book of John, that we would see we face them today as well. We love our sin. We don't want to come to the light. We love the praises of men. We don't feel like we need your approval. We don't feel like we need your glory. And so we s- stay away. We don't come to you. So God, I pray that you'd be pleased to shine the light of your glory into our hearts today so that we would see you, savor you, understand who you are, and follow you the way that you are worthy of being followed, that you must be followed all the days of our life forevermore. Amen.